All right. Welcome, everyone. Um, my name is Eric, and it is my pleasure to introduce Hayden Belfield. Uh, Hayden is a research associate and academic project manager at the University of Cambridge's Center for the Study of Existential Risk, also known as CSER. Um, his primary research is on the security implications of artificial intelligence. I also want to introduce Shin Chin Hua, who unfortunately could not be here with us today, but who is Hayden's co-author on all the work that today's talk is based on. Um, Shin Chin is a research affiliate at CSER, and she is a competition and tech lawyer who has represented clients before the European Commission and other global regulators. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Hayden in just a second here. Reminder that uh, throughout the talk, feel free to submit questions on Swapcard uh, in the, the chat or questions tab of the app. Um, and then we'll read through those during the Q&A following Hayden's talk. Uh, we won't be able to do any hand-raising questions, but submit all your questions there, and, um, and then we'll be able to have a, a great discussion. Uh, please join me in welcoming Hayden. Thanks very much. Great. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming along. Um, so yeah, I'm Hayden Belfield, Cambridge University. Um, and uh, let me just see if this works. There we go. Uh, this is uh, this is Shin Shin Hua, um, who's my co-author on all the work I'll present today. Uh, she can't be here today due to family obligations. So we've been working together since uh, 2020, I think, uh, just before the, the pandemic hit. And we've written about five papers together. I'm going to present the results from uh, three of those papers uh, today. So Shin Shin is the like, proper expert on antitrust and competition law. Uh, I work on AI governance, so uh, anything that is at all useful that I say today can be attributed to her, and anything that is wrong is, of course, my stupid fault. <laughs> um, so in this talk, I'm going to uh, explain or make an argument for why uh, we think competition law is uh, so important as a, uh, as a lever, as a, as a tool, um, it, both in the near term and in the longer term. So in brief, it, it's, a, it's a very powerful lever, sometimes synergistic and sometimes in tension with AI governance goals, which and I take AI governance goals to be the kind of responsible uh, development and deployment of uh, increasingly advanced AI systems. So safe, broad benefits, beneficial, secure. Um, yeah, uh, so the talk, we're gonna, I'm gonna do five things. Uh, first, I'll introduce antitrust and competition law for people who aren't familiar. Second, I'll discuss a possible tension between the um, uh, antitrust and uh, AI governance. Third, I'll discuss a synergy uh, and then uh, Fourth, I'll uh, suggest that uh, antitrust may be enforceable and important uh, over the long term, and then I'll end with some suggestions for people in the audience about what you can do. But I will start by telling you the story of a tech entrepreneur and a billionaire. So this tech entrepreneur dropped out uh, at age 20 to launch uh, his first startup. This was pretty successful startup, so he re reinvested all of his gains in his second startup, which was hugely successful. Uh, he became one of the richest men in America, gave away his fortune to a variety of causes, including uh, health, racial justice, universities, research. Uh, his company produced products that were used in almost every home in America. However, the company was criticized for damaging effects on society and politics and for reducing competition and innovation. So I don't know who you might be thinking of, but the person that I have in mind is John D. Rockefeller <laughs> uh, and his company, Standard Oil. So uh, Standard Oil, at its peak in the uh, 1890s and 1900s, controlled 91% of oil production and 85% of uh, final sales. It was you know, this incredibly uh, dominant, uh, dominant force. So how did it get so large? 
So this is a, this is a cartoon from, from the era. You, can, you might be able to see there, maybe not. Here's the standard old kind of octopus reaching out its tentacles and pipeline tentacles to control uh, 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 the, the banks, the railroads, the, uh, the, the producers, the refineries, everything. How did it get so large? Well, a government report from the time concluded that beyond question, the dominant position of the Standard Oil Company in the refining industry was due to unfair practices, to abuse of the control of pipelines, to railroad discrimination, and to unfair methods of competition in the sale of the refined petroleum products. So what does Standard Oil do? It formed cartels, it merged with its competitors, and when it had a near monopoly, it abused that market power, uh, its dominance, to raise prices and to suppress competition. Uh, it also, uh, skip to the next one now, an even, an even better uh, standard oil octopus, uh, it uh, bought lobbyists, it bought politicians, and it had powerful defenders in Congress. So this uh, concentration of unaccountable, abusive economic and political power in one you know, hugely powerful uh, octopus uh, proved very concerning to politicians and judges. Uh, and indeed, modern antitrust law in the US and abroad uh, was developed largely against Standard Oil. So uh, there are three bases for, um, uh, legal bases for um, antitrust law, and it's the Sherman Act of 1890, the Clayton Act of 1914, and then the 1911 uh, Supreme Court decision that finally broke up uh, Standard Oil uh, into 34 competing companies. So those, are, those three things can be seen as, as like directly trying to take on this behemoth uh, and split it up and, and be able to control this, um, this massive concentration of economic and political power. So Rockefeller was by far the, like, the greatest robber baron. I think he was the richest man in US history and the richest man maybe in, in modern world history. But there are many others. I mean, we can see here we've got uh, steel beam, copper, uh, rail. I mean, some, things, some ones that might be familiar to people in the audience are like Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie and U.S. Steel, uh, Vanderbilt and, and the railways, all these like, you know, robber barons from the Gilded Age of, of the US, uh, U.S. politics. But I'm going to suggest that the, this destructive power of monopolies and, on the other hand, serious government action to try and tackle them is not a new story in U.S. or, or world history. So I've kind of already gone into it, but I'll go into the, this first section, uh, which is a brief little overview uh, uh, of antitrust. Um, so, uh, and, and then I'll go on to talk about these, uh, these next stages. So, <coughs> there's lots of uh, kind of examples of these like huge concentrations of economic and political power uh, throughout uh, world history. So, some of the ones that, uh, uh, some of the earliest ones, I would argue, are the East India companies of, uh, you know, the, the kind of colonial um, empires, but when they were uh, like corporate colonial empires, of the British, the, the British East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, French. Uh, these were giant monopolies. They used their colonial wealth to fund bribery in the imperial center so that the politicians defended them. And in the mid-1800s, many of these were nationalized and ended because the, they, they, that concentration of economic and political power was, was too much. So uh, I've already talked about this, uh, the US Progressive Era Trusts. Uh, one thing that I think is uh, less appreciated, but I think is really interesting, is that after World War II, uh, the Allies broke up many of the uh, uh, big con conglomerates of uh, Nazi Germany, such as, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Vreingenter uh, Stahlwerke, or uh, IG Farben, and the Zaibatsu of Imperial Japan, so this is uh, groups like Sumitomo and Mitsui, 
Uh, and this is because of a concern that this, again, concentration of economic and political power, uh, uh, of corporate wealth, had supported fascism in those two countries in the interwar period. Uh, and then kind of later, we can, we can, it doesn't have to be just about kind of like breaking up these big companies. Uh, in the 70s and later, the US subjected two huge corporate giants, IBM and AT&T, to sustained uh, antitrust scrutiny. And they did the same to Microsoft in, uh, in the late 90s. And this kind of um, uh, reduced their, their dominance in the market and it uh, enabled competitors to actually like uh, get going and, and to, to, to start competing with them. Over the past two decades, one that might be less familiar to people, uh, Gazprom, uh, it's the kind of like Russian uh, uh, gas company. Uh, over the past two decades, the, the European Union has brought competition cases against Gazprom to try and increase competition for gas and reduce Europe's dependency. So without them, Europe might be in an even worse state right now. And then of course, the tech giants uh, that would be familiar to many uh, here in uh, uh, near Silicon Valley. So Apple, Alphabet, Meta, all of that. They are now actually larger than US steel and standard oil were at the time, measured uh, by profits relative to domestic GDP. So that's, I think, and you have seen in response like quite sustained antitrust scrutiny from uh, the European Union and from the US and others. So that's kind of just like the kinds of, uh, uh, the, at the very largest scale, what we're talking about and the kind of uh, scale of uh, power and influence and control uh, that, that can be reached in the corporate world. Why is it, why are monopolies and restrictions on competition harmful? You know, if these were fine, maybe we just let them uh, go. Well, 420 years ago, the 1602 uh, case of monopolies in the UK, very famous, uh, found that monopolies raise prices and they reduce quality and they uh, damage all as its purpose is private gain. Um, so this is quite like an abstract uh, sense, but I, I, I quite like it because it really just gets to the core of it. Like this is what monopolies do. When they, uh, uh, when they have this market power, you, they use that power to raise the prices that consumers pay, they reduce quality, they reduce innovation, and, uh, and they seek to defend that. So at the real core of antitrust is monopoly power or market power. So significant market power allows a firm to act independently of its competitors and ultimately its consumers. So in other words, it lacks the rivalry and competitive constraints to lower prices, improve quality, or innovate. There are four key areas of modern antitrust, uh, and all can be thought of in relation to this like monopoly market power thing. So abuse of dominance is, uh, you can imagine a monopolist exploiting its market power to uh, force its consumers to buy not just one product from it, but several like tied products or bundled together products. Uh, cartels, uh, collusion, anti-competitive agreements. We can think of these as like different companies getting together to jointly form a group that allows them to act like a monopolist. So. Uh, uh, but this really applies, this kind of section on uh, cartels applies to any coordinated practice between uh, companies that restricts or distorts uh, competition. Finally, like the third major element of, uh, uh, of modern antitrust is, is merger control, covering uh, mergers and acquisitions. And this can be thought of as like these companies getting together to formally form an, a monopolist uh, or reduce competition. And then, uh, you know, Forgive, forgive just this, uh, this overview. I think these are important things to just bear in mind. Uh, the fourth one is state aid, which is a, a lot more common in Europe. Um, the US seems very comfortable with state aid. Uh, so basically this is uh, concerned with state support for kind of national champions or big companies. So giving them tax breaks, giving them subsidies, reduce land. So we can think of like, you know, 
When big companies are deciding where to put uh, headquarters, they often are offered tax breaks to place themselves in various parts of the US. You can't really do that in the, in the EU. So those are the kind of four key main areas of uh, competition law, modern antitrust and competition law, and we're gonna kind of return to these uh, throughout. Uh, yeah, so antitrust is known as competition law in Europe. Um, most of uh, Shinchen and my experiences of the European Union, but almost most of the stuff we're talking about is pretty like uh, more at the level of kind of abstract analysis uh, and carries across to US antitrust law as well. So in Europe, uh, anti uh, competition law has always been a cornerstone of the European Union. It's really in the like very foundational agreements from the 1950s on the European Steel and Coal Community and the Treaty of Rome. So it's like really goes back to, right to the, to the very beginning. So uh, maybe you can't even read that, I don't know. Uh, what I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll just kind of go through them. So the important thing to note about competition law is that it's, a, it's, it's like a very powerful tool. So it has jurisdiction over any company that's within its boundaries. So like even if you're not based in the EU, if you're operating, if you're selling goods and services in the EU market, uh, the EU competition law can, can, can capture you, same for, same for vice versa. It's got really uh, strong procedural and investigative powers, uh, really like in some ways like much stronger than other branches of, uh, of the, uh, the federal government or of the EU. So it can sanction up to 10% of global turnover or even at, at its most extreme uh, break up companies or it can accept uh, like very substantial uh, remedies, so, it, 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 so it, it, it stops the case, which can be like you know, giving access to your competitors to your like essential uh, IP or essential infrastructure. So yeah, really, really strong procedural investigative powers and uh, very willing to use them. So regulators are institutionally strong, they're well resourced, and they're, they're very influential and they you know, coordinate worldwide. So I think, uh, um, this is like really one of the, the, the strongest and most active arms, certainly of the EU, but also of the, um, of the US uh, state. So, um, and then uh, it's going to increase in powers uh, soon uh, because in the EU, the UK and elsewhere, they're introducing something called the ex-ante regime. So at the moment, a lot of uh, competition law is like ex-post and it kind of looks like, oh, what was the effect of this whatever um, decision, corporate uh, consolidation? Oh, it had this bad effect. Oh, that's a shame. We, maybe we should learn uh, differently. The ex-ante regime is shifting to uh, having a focus on, on specified gatekeeper companies that have strategic market status. Uh, so these are like most clearly the big tech uh, giants. And these companies are going to be required to follow codes of conduct. And there's going to be additional inspection um, powers for the regulator to go into these companies to like look at their algorithms, uh, you know, uh, themselves. So one kind of indication of this is the level of fines. Um, this is uh, EU fines against uh, tech companies and you see here it's in the like uh, it's in the, the the billions. What I want to be just like very clear maybe I'm belaboring the point but we're really not saying uh, big is always bad. We're not saying big can't be competitive uh, sorry can't be innovative. We're not saying that uh, breaking up is the only option. You know, there's a, a whole host of kind of um, scrutiny and remedies and fines that you can do before you try and do the, the proper structural separation, which is breaking up. Uh, and we're not saying that the only thing antitrust can do is uh, slow down progress. Uh, it can instead, uh, it can affect the kind of the, the number and nature of AI developers, and it can affect the, the behavior of those developers. But what we are saying, there we go, 
uh, is that antitrust is a powerful tool, indeed one of the most powerful tools that states have over private companies, and it is both in tension and in synthesis with AI governance goals, which I've said previously is responsible, safe, and beneficial deployment of AI. Cool, okay, so that's uh, just my, that's like a brief uh, overview of antitrust. So hopefully we're all on like uh, broadly the same page, we kind of know a bit about the history, and we know a bit, a bit about like these like four main areas, and we know like what's antitrust concerned with, concentrations of economic and political power, right? Great, so uh, I'll now go on to like the more like actual uh, AI governance bits and talk about three of our papers. Uh, we can talk about like some other papers we've written in, in the Q&A. So first one is, uh, I've actually got it printed off here. This, uh, this uh, monstrosity of a paper, uh, US law journals really like very, very long uh, 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 papers and, and we actually, <laughs> we've got like very long appendices to these as well. So, um, so this was our first one. It was in the Yale uh, Journal of Law and Technology. Uh, and yeah, so this is the title, AI and Antitrust, Reconciling Tensions Between Competition Law and Cooperative Development. So what was the, the inspiration for this paper was another one that I was involved in called Toward Trustworthy AI Development Mechanisms for Supporting Verifiable Claims. So uh, back in 2020, uh, we published this. This is, uh, I mean, you, you might be able to see here, there's just like a long list of various people from tech companies and others. Uh, so we, we got together to come up with uh, 10 concrete suggestions for how companies could uh, uh, be more trustworthy. And a lot of these things was how they could cooperate together to. Um, uh, do things that are beneficial, do things that are, you know, uh, that show that they are more trustworthy, like uh, better audits or um, uh, collaboration on safety or things like that. So this was the motivation. We were like, wow, this is so cool. We want to make, we want to in ensure that this can uh, be functional and can work well. There's lots of these competition proposals. We want them to work. Uh, sorry, co cooperation proposals. However, there's this question about how to achieve that consistent with competition law. So clearly there's some inherent kind of like uh, uh, theoretical tension there between uh, the goal of antitrust, which is prevent cooperation, promote rivalry, promote competition, you know, lack of information about what your, uh, what your competitors are doing, so you're constantly um, motivated to uh, like compete fiercely, and then cooperation, which is like, will have more information and may kind of like reduce those competitive pressures. So uh, I'm not gonna go into too much of the details about the legal arguments, for more you can uh, read uh, that. Uh, but hopefully it'll just give you a kind of like a bit of an overview of uh, why we think there's some tensions here, but crucially why we think they, we can, they can be um, resolved if sensible steps are taken. So uh, yeah, this is just to give you like a very high level overview of the, uh, of the, of, of the paper. So these are the 14 uh, different proposals we talk about here. Uh, they're kind of grouped, the, the blue ones here are kind of like more long-term proposals. These ones here in the middle are kind of about uh, monitoring, information sharing, and this uh, one down at the bottom here is about standard setting. So there's things there like the assist clause, the windfall clause that might be familiar to people, uh, things like uh, third-party auditing, uh, uh, having standards around benchmarks or uh, standards around secure enclaves. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna uh, talk about this uh, 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 in that much depth, but I will talk about like just two of them very briefly. So the first one is uh, standard setting. So 
<laughs> it can be really useful to set standards on a, on a variety of, uh, of, of topics in, uh, in AI governance. So for example, the partnership on AI is doing some really uh, useful stuff or on, uh, about ML or on uh, Safe Life or on others. Um, so yeah, a standardization agreement is, uh, it gives some technical or quality requirement that products uh, or methods uh, processes should comply with. Uh, so very important, very useful, could be um, very useful uh, for promoting trustworthy AI development. But there's concern there if competitors are excluded from standard setting processes or access to that final standard. So what do we say? Well, you totally can go ahead with standard setting. You, in fact, should. But uh, just make sure that it's on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms, voluntary where possible. So uh, have, uh, it, when these processes are going, have them transparent, have them open to uh, competitors in the marketplace. And then once, this, uh, once some standard is developed around you know, hardware security or uh, publication, you know, publication or release norms or something like that, make sure that you know, er everyone can access that standard uh, equally. So you know, it's not that uh, you can't do this cooperation. It's just like, do it in a sensible way, and then uh, there won't be any problems. Uh, it won't raise any concerns in our view. Uh, the second one is about kind of monitoring or information sharing. So there's, uh, again, I, you know, just to talk about the partnership because uh, the partnership on AI brings together like 100 uh, of the leading AI companies and a civil society group. So it's like an interesting uh, one to talk about in terms of standard setting. They're like very clearly, they would be the, they're the kind of like industry, um, uh, industry association. So they're, they're currently work, they've currently got things like uh, an incident database that they're hoping to build up. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's other kind of uh, suggestions about, you know, could you do uh, mutual monitoring? Could you do mutual audits? Could you do things like that? So uh, yeah, could you do red teaming where, you know, one, a, company for a, a team from one company kind of tries to critique and attack uh, the models of, an, of another or the systems of another, uh, of another com company? And yeah, again, there could be some really, really useful stuff here. Um, some really uh, important stuff that would help uh, companies work better together and help them uh, uh, yeah, be more trustworthy, make more verifiable claims so we can actually like, check that the claims they're making about like, oh, we're developing AI ethically, we're developing safely, we can check whether they're true. But again, you've got to be careful because you don't want to be sharing commercially sensitive information. So that's, that's things like on this date in the future, we're going to be publishing, we're going to be releasing this product and we're going to be selling it for this price and like, this is how much it costs us to develop. All of that stuff you want to be careful about because that gives your competitors information that they can use to like, oh, great, you're selling it for that price, we'll sell it for that price as well. And you can, there's a, there's a uh, you, can, you can imagine that there, there could be um, uh, the, uh, the development of something like a cartel. So you want to be careful about commercially sensitive information, but so uh, the, the suggestions are just minimize that kind of information exchange to only what is strictly necessary for the immediate purpose. Like, do you really need to be doing it if you're talking about like how we, like here's some new uh, safety research that we've done. You don't need to, be, need to be talking about how much it costs you to develop your uh, language model or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, a lot of these suggestions are work through a third party. Don't do it uh, directly between the two of you, but like instead work through a civil society group uh, industry associations, something like that, something that's more uh, broad that can anonymize and aggregate information. So I've just talked about those two uh, just quite briefly. But yeah, so the uh, takeaway from all of these 14 is uh, exercise caution when you're doing this, like, you know, be careful. But it's not like a blanket ban 
uh, it shouldn't like no no one no one at these companies uh, should be uh, receiving legal advice of like oh you just can't talk to these people at all like you can they shouldn't raise concerns if the safeguards are are, are followed so yeah that was the uh, that's the first um, paper that we did there's obviously a lot more uh, in this that I'm not going to go into but uh, I don't really know what I'm going to do with this so if somebody wants this after the talk they can uh, they can uh, we can we can have a bidding war for it um, okay so. That was the so this is the that was the first paper we did, which was um, about the a possible tension between antitrust and uh, and and cooperation and AI governance and how we think that can be resolved. So secondly, uh, another paper, uh, the next paper I want to talk to you about is uh, a possible synergy. So this is looking at the supply chain for compute. Uh, so yep. Yeah, so the full title is compute and antitrust. Regulatory implications of the hardware supply chain from chip design to cloud APIs. Um, so there's some uh, really cool things uh, in the AI supply chain. It's like really remarkable. It's almost, uh, when you uh, uh, read into it, it's like science fiction qualities. So uh, the way you, you make uh, uh, really high-end chips is you have to ha have um, like this uh, laser shining, th this laser etches a, um, a pattern on a silicon wafer that you then put transistors on. And this mirror has, is so precise that if this mirror that was, is shining the laser to scratch the thing, if that mirror was the size of Germany, it would be so perfectly like flat that the only gap, the only like slight bump would be less than one-tenth of a millimeter if the, if the, if the whole mirror was. So it's this incredibly, incredibly precise uh, like level of, of precision and scientific achievement. Uh, the laser they're shooting is so accurate that, like, if you had a laser pointer, you could, uh, and we're on the moon, you could hit a thumb on Earth. Like, it's this incredible, like, science fiction levels of, uh, of accuracy. But you also see it, like, later in the, in the supply chain. So uh, Alpha uh, Go Zero, I think it was, played 4.9 million games of, uh, of Go Against Itself. Just, like, really, you know, kind of uh, superhuman science fictional uh, levels. Uh, and then, so the biggest public AI model to date uh, when we wrote this paper, and I believe it's still the case, uh, is Wudao 2.0, uh, a Chinese language model. It's got 1.75 trillion parameters, and that's uh, uh, roughly similar to the number of synapses in a mouse brain. So just this, the, 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 the supply chain for computers is really a, a wild, uh, really remarkable thing that uh, is very interesting and I would encourage people to dig into. So, what, am I, what do I mean by compute? We're talking about uh, a specialized stack of software and hardware, including processors, memory, networking, engineered to support AI-specific workloads or applications. So you'll often like, hear people talking about compute in AI. It's like the computing power that, is, uh, that uh, models are, are trained on and, and, and run on. So uh, yeah, so uh, the, what the paper does is it argues that um, uh, this kind of topic of compute and the, the supply chain for it is underexplored in the competition law literature. Uh, and then these two, the one to bold, I'm gonna talk about a bit more. It also makes the, the argument that compute is a major input to and driver of AI progress and of market power, crucially. And that when you look at the supply chain, uh, there's just like massively high barriers to entry and uh, ex uh, incredible concentration along that supply chain. And then the better regulatory target I'll talk about in the next section. And uh, there's just like a few case studies that we can return to and I can uh, and test you on if you remembered what the four were from earlier. So uh, yeah, here's a, great, um, here's a great graph from some colleagues, Jaime Sevilla, uh, who's at Epoch and others, 
So this is <coughs> a big pun. What the um, uh, the big uh, the amount of um, uh, the amount of uh, flops used in the biggest um, training run to that date. So uh, in 2012, uh, AlexNet is uh, somewhere here. Yeah, right there in the middle. Uh, and then up to more recently, things like Gopher, Megatron, and like GPT-3, people might be more familiar with. So uh, the takeaway that uh, from this is that uh, from uh, in the last decade, 2010 to 2021, the amount of compute used in the largest uh, training runs has been doubling every six months. It's been getting bigger. And uh, the, one of the late largest ones is 600,000 times more compute than was used in AlexNet just a decade ago. So it's becoming this like really, really like central part of how AI uh, is developed and how it goes forward. And people may be familiar with uh, like the concept of scaling laws. And yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's referenced quite a lot. So <coughs> that's the kind of make the argument that it's, it's this really like, it's, it's very, very central to, uh, to AI progress and to uh, market power, right? So this is what, this is uh, how we've um, laid out what the supply chain is, looks like for uh, for AI hardware and compute. So it goes from the left to the right. Uh, there's chip design, there's chip fabrication, there's chip uh, assembly testing and packaging, and then these are often kind of bundled together in these big cloud computing uh, centers. And then something is trained uh, using this, this cloud computing uh, services, and then it's put to some uh, end use. Uh, so, yeah, you can see here that some of the key inputs are things like uh, the mirrors, the ASML uh, laser shining that I discussed uh, earlier. Sorry, that's semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Uh, things like, yeah, so chip, chip design, things like uh, ARM or uh, Intel do things like that. Foundries, that's things like TSMC that people might be familiar with. Cloud computing, you know, things like Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud. Um, yeah, so this, this, is the, this is what we kind of, and this is adapted from uh, Karnat Al at CSET. This is the kind of model uh, of uh, one model that we have for the uh, supply chain. And I think this is it's very interesting because if you, if you follow these stages, basically all of them are characterized by incredibly high barriers to entry in terms of uh, financial cost and also uh, um, uh, tacit knowledge. And then, and that has led to uh, incredible levels of concentration. So. Let's talk about some of them. Uh, basically, with um, with uh, chips, you want the the smaller the node, the better, the like uh, more capable the the chip is. So, at the uh, uh, lots and lots of companies can produce things at like the 15 nanometer node, and but then as it gets like more and more high tech, smaller and smaller, the number of people that can really do this like science fiction level stuff decreases, smaller and smaller and smaller. So, at seven nanometers, you get ASML and Nikon. You get some of the chip makers are able to do it, but you get down to like the really, really like cutting edge stuff, the the three nanometer stuff, and uh, two nanometer in the future, and only one company, ASML, based in the Netherlands, is able to produce that semiconductor manufacturing equipment that you need, and they sell it uh, to TSMC, which is the only chip manufacturer in the world that can produce this like very advanced stuff. So then people are making moves. People may have heard about like the CHIPS Act in the US. There was also CHIPS Act in the EU first. Uh, they're both trying to like encourage chip making in Europe and the US. But at the moment, it's like really, really firmly, uh, only TSMC in the world is able to do this uh, leading kind of cutting edge stuff. But we see this uh, elsewhere. We see this in like uh, GPUs, uh, graphics processing units that are used often in uh, AI training. 
We also see it in um, uh, DRAM, which is, uh, uh, I've completely what it stands for. And then uh, we also see it in cloud. So, uh, in, so the cloud market is kind of quite split between uh, 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 China, which has its own um, three uh, uh, cloud providers, and then the rest of the world where th uh, the three US ones dominate. So you've got, <coughs> uh, big one, Amazon Web Services up here on 32%, uh, on Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud. Um, and together, uh, I believe it's 60% uh, of the of the market, um, going up to 80% for some of the more advanced things. So basically we can see that just like all along this supply chain, uh, there's uh, incredible levels of concentration, high barriers to entry, which makes this thing like very, very juicy and very, very interesting to antitrust. Uh, because like whenever you have these kinds of uh, concentrations of power, like very high uh, levels of, of market share, that gets the like spidey sense of uh, competition lawyers and, and regulators tingling. So this is why it, it, uh, it's uh, of like uh, uh, strong interest to, um, to antitrust. It's also interesting from an AI governance perspective because maybe like, oh, we really don't need to focus on, you know, if we can just focus on like some of these leading ones which are the, the absolute dominant at their stage of the, uh, of the supply chain. So now I'm gonna talk a bit about how this uh, intersects more kind of concretely with uh, antitrust by going through the three. So uh, I just showed you, but I hope that maybe, does anybody remember one of these? This is mergers. So um, their NVIDIA was about to buy ARM. Uh, they're both kind of um, uh, big chip designers. Uh, this, was, uh, it was not, this was abandoned uh, after, so it had to get, it was, um, NVIDIA is a like US company, ARM's in, uh, in Cambridge, the, in the United Kingdom. It was going to buy it, but it had to pass clearance in several jurisdictions, not just in the UK. It had to pass uh, merger control um, regulation in uh, the EU. Uh, China got involved. The US got involved. South Korea. Lots and lots of people raised uh, uh, concerns and questions, uh, especially about like whether ARM was able to act as a neutral uh, technology supplier. So this is like already we are seeing um, uh, this compute supply chain like being of uh, strong interest to. Uh, people within antitrust. Whoops. Uh, so, secondly, uh, abuse of dominance. So, this is when like one company with a with a big market share kind of abuses that market share to uh, cut out competitors or kill rivals or force its competitors to pay uh, force its consumers to pay higher prices. So, uh, the FTC, led by Lena Khan here on the right, here in the U.S., is currently investigating Amazon Web Services. And um, this is uh, Margrethe Versteyer, who's the competition commissioner in the EU. Uh, they're also investigating over there. And in fact, there's a bill working its way through Congress at the moment uh, on self-preferencing, uh, which is uh, when you, uh, if you Google something and Google gives its, uh, its services first, you, go you search something on Amazon, Amazon stuff comes up first, uh, and maybe they're concerned that they're using data gathered from their competitors to kind of like uh, shut out uh, shut out others. So, and they're worried about also exclusivity incentives. If you you know you're doing something with AWS, you should just keep on. You shouldn't go to any competitors. And they're concerned about bundling services. So you already get this thing, but you should get all these other services from AWS as well. Anyway, so this is just to to flag that like this other uh, aspect of the supply chain is also uh, antitrust is beginning to look at, uh, beginning to look into.
Uh, yeah, cartels and collusion. I've already talked, uh, I've talked to the previous um, little section about that many of these uh, agreements uh, are cool and groovy, if, stru if structured well, but if they're structured poorly, they might raise concerns. This is the, um, the uh, uh, bu -bu -bum diagram from, the, uh, from this Towards Trustworthy AI Development Report that I talked about earlier with some of the uh, proposals. And then finally, um, uh, state aid. Yeah, so the, um, this is most re relevant to the EU, but uh, the CHIPS Act that was passed in the EU before the US one, uh, it kind of adapted state aid rules. So one of the commissioners who's like the cabinet level secretary or uh, the government minister, or whatever, uh, Thierry Breton said, oh, we're scrapping state aid rules so we can build more chip manufacturing plants. And then the competition commissioner was like, no, 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 we're adapting uh, state aid rules. Very, 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 very important. Uh, so for the first time, you're gonna be able to, governments will be able to subsidize the building of, of uh, chip production facilities in the, uh, in the EU. So, uh, so the recap of this paper is to just try and uh, kind of introduce uh, the intersection between uh, the compute and AI hardware supply chain and antitrust as like a major topic, right? Like there's, uh, despite it being relatively underexplored, there is like several reasons why we should be uh, focusing on this as like a key uh, topic of interest to both AI governance and to, uh, and to antitrust and competition law. And we can already see that it's beginning to uh, intersect in very interesting ways. So that was uh, this, so I've talked about, I've given, I've given the overview, I've talked a bit about where there might be intention, I've talked a bit about where there may be a possible synergy uh, around uh, the complete compute supply chain. But you might be saying, well, this is all very well in the, the near term, but is this at all like relevant if we're talking about like as AI becomes ever more advanced and powerful? Is it just like kind of irrelevant? Will it just fall by the side? Uh, we argue uh, it won't in another paper about this long. So this, uh, the, the title of this one, Effective Enforceability of Competition Law Under Different AI Development Scenarios. So the uh, idea for this was, uh, the thing that we keep on returning back to, can competition law be a key lever to ensure that future AI development is safe and beneficial? Like, how can it, we reduce those uh, tensions and increase those synergies? And clearly one of the major uh, questions there is, uh, will it at all remain effective uh, as uh, we consider different scenarios? And of course, uh, and this is, you know, enables anticipatory governance, enables to pl us to plan for the future. We don't know how AI is gonna develop over the next you know, coming decades um, in terms of uh, technically or kind of uh, economically. So we've gotta consider a range of scenarios and we offer six development variables on which uh, um, things might, uh, things might uh, differ over the coming decades. And uh, we talk a bit about like in which of those cases would uh, uh, antitrust and by extension other forms of regulation uh, still be important. So, just briefly, you know, I'm an academic, we love definitions, here's, our, here's the definition. Uh, we're talking about four factors when we're talking about effective enforceability or whether regulation like really has any bite whatsoever. So the first is whether it falls within the jurisdictional scope. The second is whether there are like loopholes that emerge over time. And then the kind of uh, more important and um, concrete things are whether regulators are able to detect uh, infringements of some regulation or of you know, antitrust and then whether, in this case, competition law can uh, remedy and sanction and actually like fix the problem. So whether they can spot that something's going wrong and whether they can actually 
uh, address it. So that's what we mean when we're talking about effective enforceability, like whether they can, uh, there's some loophole or jurisdiction, and then whether they can spot it, whether they can fix it. So here's our, um, here's our, here's our six variables. Uh, we've got capacity, speed of development, uh, key inputs, model, number of actors, and the nature and relationship of those actors. So, uh, I mean, the capacity one is like probably the, the simplest to explain, uh, you know, what is the capacity of, of the AI system at that time? Uh, and very clearly, you know, uh, if uh, the system is like a very high capacity, you would expect regulation to be like less enforceable. If it's uh, kind of lower capacity, what we have nowadays, you would expect uh, regulation and competition law to be more enforceable. Uh, I'm not gonna go through all six of them. You can, again, read the full paper. I'm gonna go uh, into a bit more uh, depth about two of these, uh, which are uh, key inputs and the nature and relationship. But um, uh, yeah, so let me, so the idea is we have this uncertainty about how the world's gonna go, but we can kind of say, well, are these pathways to the future, are they gonna be more like, uh, are they gonna be like really fast takeoff and like very quickly get to like a very capable AI system? Are they slow or, or um, are there like a large number of actors? There are a small number of actors. So we can say like these different things and we can say uh, based on that whether they are likely to be uh, more or less uh, enforceable. So I'm just gonna go through uh, two. One, of the, one is a technical variable and this is built on the kind of previous one about compute. So it's often said that there are like three key uh, inputs into AI progress and into AI market power. We've got like innovation, good ideas, better algorithms, talent. Uh, we've got uh, kind of large levels of data, and then we've got compute. And we can kind of uh, envisage this on a spectrum like this, where it all adds up to 100%, right? So if uh, compute is like um, the major bottleneck, let's say it's got like 70% uh, of, um, of uh, progress can be attributed to just increases in compute. So therefore there's 30% to give to data innovation. This is like a, a pretty common, uh, way of conceptualizing it that's like you see a lot from um, uh, analyses from like OpenAI, uh, Danny Hernandez and others. So uh, there are several reasons. So talent, yeah, is this like talented people coming up with good ideas. There's data gathering together huge like databases and then there's like computing power. So uh, it could be that like uh, progress in the next few decades is limited by coming up with great ideas. It could be that it's limited by like gathering huge, huge, huge levels of data together, or it could be that it's limited and like mainly the like main driver of AI progress in the next few decades is like just huge, huge, huge amounts of computing power that we talked about in the previous section. Uh, there are reasons to hope that it's compute that is the like limiting factor and that is the main driver of AI progress. Why is this? Because it's easy, it could, we argue, that it's easier for, for regulators to detect breaches when it comes to compute uh, as compared to if data or talent was the, uh, um, was the restricting uh, factor, and it's easier to remedy and sanction those breaches. So uh, computing power, it's all in this like, you know, very large data centers, uh, it's, it's very legible, it's quantifiable, and then uh, you can, yeah, so, it, uh, so that's, that makes it easier to detect breaches, whereas if you compare it to like data, you know, it's, it's, it's much harder to like, all this data is contextual, maybe there's certain restrictions applied to it, maybe you can't use it in these particular areas. Talent, even harder, how do you compare like, oh, this person is worth like 100 times this person, whereas comparing like this, this chip is worth, you know, 10 times these amounts of chips is a lot easier to do. 
so that makes you know uh, compute like a, a very promising target for uh, um, people from the outside to be able to even spot that something uh, uh, bad is happening uh, and that there's some concentration of power. And then it's easier also to like sanction these breaches because let's say you want to split up some company. You've gone, you've tried all the other ones. You just have to go for the the hard, the hardest, uh, most powerful tool that you have, which is like structural separations between companies. Great, you say, right, you talented people go over there, you talented people go over there, you can compete now. It's really hard to stop people just being like, okay, well, I'm not gonna continue working with this company, I'm gonna go work for this third company, I'm gonna go rehire here, I'm gonna go do whatever. So that's what's called flight risk. Uh, with, uh, you might wanna like, with data, you might wanna like say, well, we'll give uh, your competitors access to your data, but then there might be like privacy concerns, there may be all kinds of interoperability concerns there. So it's much easier to do structural remedies that kind of like very clean breaks uh, with compute, because you can just be like, right, these data centers belong to this company, these data centers belong to the, this company. So those are reasons that uh, 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 compute might be uh, better for effective enforceability. Right, so, uh, so that's just one of the variables we talked about. The other one that I'm gonna talk about today is the nature and relationship of actors. Um, so, <laughs> um, basically, yeah, so these, these, are, are, these are like three, these are six options for how uh, the relationship could be between two different actors. So, you can have two private companies and the relationship can be cooperative. You can have two private companies and the uh, relationship can be competitive. You could have interaction between states, and that could be cooperative. Interaction between states, competitive. And then finally, you could have one between a private actor and a state, a private actor and a state. So uh, this is just to uh, uh, kind of show that like, we don't yet know what's gonna happen in the upcoming decades um, with AI development. All six of these possibilities seems like very open and likely to me. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, what's the, yeah, what is the, what's the like, kind of nature of this actor and then what's the relationship between them? And there are some interesting things here, right? So if it's mainly led by states, then uh, it can be shielded from competition law under a state immunity rule uh, unless it's uh, operating like a company. So that's one thing that's like, oh, well, the more we're, uh, we're in these kinds of worlds, then the less competition law and regulation can like, really make, uh, some, uh, make a difference. There's a lot, there's some in, very interesting questions here about um, the, when you've got this kind of uh, relationship, you know, like some sort of very cooperative thing between like a national champion and, and a state, does that become like in practice nationalized and then it becomes a state company? Uh, and then there's some very interesting things uh, that could be, you could see deployed over the coming decades. Uh, so for example, uh, shielding uh, um, your national champion and your AI companies from action from other uh, states or weaponizing competition law to like go after the industrial base of your competitors. So I think this is like gives an indication of how looking into uh, antitrust and AI governance together can like uh, show a bunch of strategies and considerations that we wouldn't think about if we're just thinking about either of them in, uh, in, in isolation. Okay, so uh, yeah, to go back to the, the six, again, we can talk about it more in the Q&A or in office hours or whatever, but yeah, this is the, uh, these are the six kind of um, uh, variables. Uh, many of these will be clear to you. Yeah, the other one is maybe like model is quite interesting. Is it more the kind of comprehensive AI services thing? which is gonna be more enforceable, or is it like one single agent 
uh, much harder to enforce competition law against or any kind of regulation against. Uh, yeah, so this is, so that's, I've, got, I've given an overview of antitrust, so hopefully we're on the same page. Uh, I've talked about um, this possible kind of near-term tension um, between the kind of cooperation that we might really want and then uh, antitrust might, uh, if uh, structured poorly, might get in the way. I've talked about these possible synergies where like there's already uh, antitrust scrutiny on many aspects of the, com of the compute supply chain that might continue in the future and we might uh, indeed want to use uh, the power of antitrust to achieve various uh, governance goals. And then I've made an argument for why, uh, while there, there's still a great uncertainty about what the, the future holds in terms of AI development, uh, there, it, there's still a plausible argument that in many of these scenarios, uh, antitrust and regulation remains a uh, important, very powerful tool of states, indeed one of the most powerful tool that states have over companies. So. I'm going to end because I've already, I'm sure, gone over what uh, I, I said I would. Uh, what you can do, uh, and I apologies for this, this wall of text, but there's really good work done so far. It's not just me and Shinshin. Uh, it's also Colin O'Keefe, who uh, was at the uh, GovAI Legal Priorities Project, now at OpenAI, does some great work on this. There's been some really good papers from CSET on antitrust and AI. Uh, so yeah, there's already really good stuff. So if you in the audience or uh, you watching at home are um, working on uh, AI governance. If you're at uh, uh, one of these companies, you're at an industry lab, you're in government, you're in academia, you're at a, at a think tank, you're thinking about AI governance, you should be, uh, our argument is you should be paying attention to antitrust. Like, it's already paying attention to you. It's a very key, uh, uh, important tool, and both for, you know, intention and in synergy. Uh, if you're not working at any of these places, uh, but you're, you've been uh, uh, intrigued and you're one of the few people who will want to read this full thing, well, consider working on uh, at this intersection. I think it's like a really rich uh, intersection. It's something that we've got, like we've uh, given you know, helpful advice to companies. Uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, interest in this work. Uh, so yeah, why not consider working on it? Uh, consider becoming a lawyer if you're a, like, at, a, at a student level. There are loads of great places you can do this work. Uh, legal Priorities Project, I've already mentioned. Uh, GovAI at Oxford. Uh, the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, where I work in Cambridge. Uh, CSET, which is the Center for Security and Emerging Technology in DC. There's great places to uh, be able to work on this, uh, this, this question. Uh, you can cover this in academia. You can cover this in private practice at a, like a law firm. You can cover it at a regulator, um, like the FTC, the DOJ or in the EU, the, the Competition Commission. And it's not just lawyers, uh, it, you know, I'm not a lawyer, I'm like uh, much more from like public policy or from uh, uh, political science. Uh, there's also useful things to, to do there. Very, like uh, economics, um, uh, competition law is like the least legal and most economics-y of any branch of law. Uh, it's one where like judges actually look at like cost benefit analyses, uh, which is remarkably rare in the rest of, of the law. So there's lots of like really useful stuff that one can uh, contribute in terms of economics as well. And here's just like some uh, some like uh, cool research projects that I'd be like very keen for people to take up. You know, can we say anything about the optimal number of competitors? Do we want more or do we want less cooperation in the marketplace as it currently stands? You know, there's, we've talked about 14 cooperation strategies. There's lots of other ones that people have suggested. People could do analysis of that. You could deep dive into these stages of compute that we've talked about before. You know, this ex-ante regime is coming in. It's gonna change things quite dramatically. How can that, how can that new regime 
produce really useful information from these companies and how can it uh, affect behavioral change to move towards uh, AI governance goals. And finally, maybe we could, you know, uh, could you, um, you, you could do analysis of the windfall clause and other long-term strategies. So, uh, so just to briefly wrap up, here's like something I've been thinking about and people have been talking, that I've been talking about at the, uh, at the conference. So kind of building on this optimal number and comparison to the windfall clause. Uh, a lot of the work on AI governance to date has been around uh, modeling races and saying, well, we really need to be careful about races with the bottom on safety. We really need to be concerned about like large number of competitors all kind of, da -da, they can't cooperate. They'll race to the bottom on safety. And I agree that's a problem. Uh, however, one of the, like, the key uh, papers in this field, um, uh, Racing to the Precipice, one of the conclusions from that is that, oh, the, the, the fewer number of competitors, the better, right? And ideally, just one, because then there's nothing for them to cooperate on, uh, for them to compete with. I think that uh, the history of antitrust should make us uh, quite skeptical and nervous about that, right? Like uh, when Standard Oil was a the monopolist, when the East India companies were monopolists, when all of these, you know, uh, the the interwar um, uh, conglomerates in uh, Japan and Germany had that monopoly market power, had that stranglehold on economic power and on political power, uh, they didn't use it to uh, produce like the optimally safe outcome. They used it to uh, produce pollution and externalities. They used it to like buy the regulators and they used that power to, um, you know, like cut corners on safety. So I would uh, contend, I, I, you know, I haven't made a formal argument for this, but I would contend that like uh, we should be while we should be concerned about, you know, 50 competitors all racing towards advanced AI, maybe we should be as concerned about just the one uh, monopolist developing uh, AI. So I'm happy to talk, about, that's maybe a bit of a controversial thing to end on, but uh, yeah, happy to talk more about that in the Q&A and in the, uh, in the office hours afterwards. Thanks so much for bearing uh, with this in the, quite a, a hot room and quite a, uh, uh, I, you know, I find it very interesting, <laughs> a lot of people find antitrust quite dry. So thank you for uh, thank you for your time and thanks so much. Cheers. Thank you so much, Hayden. Uh, so we are very close to 4.30 when this Sorry, session apologies. is scheduled to end. Uh, no, no, thank you. It's a lot of very interesting stuff to cover. Um, luckily, we have Hayden for a full hour of office hours in room E right after this, starting at 4.30. Uh, so feel free to migrate over there uh, immediately after this, and, and we can have a, a great discussion about mm -hmm. all of this, this rich material. Um, if I could just borrow you for one question before we do that. Um, so obviously, you talk a lot about how antitrust is this powerful tool for governments uh, to have a lever over corporations. Mm. Um, just to zoom out a bit to look at the entire AI governance landscape, how much do you think the focus ought to be on, on regulating the actions of, of companies and corporations as opposed to governments themselves? Obviously, like different countries have different levels of involvement in you know, developing AI for their, for their own purposes. And yeah, I'm curious what your take is on that. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, a great question and a really uh, key one. So I think we just like really don't know at this stage whether the development of AI is gonna be like mostly led by companies, um, you know, and increasingly advanced AI is gonna be led by companies you know, for the next few decades, or whether uh, states, governments are going to increasingly like uh, muscle in and like try and direct that progress. Um, you know, obviously we saw that very clearly with you know nuclear technology, very state-led. But things like cyber are an interesting one, where you know a lot of the uh, offensive cyber weapons 
developed in the private sector or by criminal gangs, but then the direct, like how they're directed, how they're used, is often quite state-led by like the US, Russia, China, others. Um, so yeah, I think we need to be looking at all of these together, and I think there's interesting analogies you can draw between the two. So like just in the same way that in the uh, corporate world, you might be worried about like just com completely unrestrained competition and no uh, cooperation on, on important goals, and but also concerned about like one dominant uh, 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 company that is like unsafe or might misuse the technology. I think in the international level, we should also be concerned about like uh, just complete you know arms racing. But then on the other hand, maybe we should also be concerned about just like one company, one country uh, claiming some rights to develop and deploy this. Uh, and to just take decisions on behalf of the uh, the entire world. So yeah, I think there's, uh, I think we need people looking at uh, both of these things. But I think there's interesting kind of analogies and lessons we can draw between the two. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it seems like there's a delicate balancing act, no matter sure. which regime you're working at in this government area. Mm -hmm. So uh, very happy that people like you are thinking hard about this already. Um, and again, if you want to ask Hayden some more specific questions, uh, Room E is the place to go right now uh, until 5:30. Thank you guys so much, and join me in thanking Hayden one more time. Great, thanks, everyone. Cheers.